Thanks for joining us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development across our state. I'm your host, Jeff Brent, and this podcast is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. Navigating business practices of foreign companies can be a challenge for even the most experienced economic developer. Whether it is foreign regulations or cultural differences, Today's guest is here to better help us navigate the important world of foreign direct investment. He's a native of Germany. Florian Stamm is a partner in the corporate international sustainability practices of Smith, Gambrel, and Russell LLP. Florian practices corporate and international law with an emphasis on American-European cross-border legal matters. He received his bachelor's degree from Butler University and his Juris Doctor from the University of Georgia and coincidentally, both schools are Bulldogs. Florian Stom, welcome to Mississippi Prospects. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So you are an expert in foreign direct investment, um, also being a native of Germany, uh, living in the United States, and navigating the, uh, the business world, uh, helping assist foreign clients in the U.S. and also U.S. clients uh, abroad. What are some of the general things that at least uh, U.S. Uh, communities or locations need to consider in the site selection process to be attractive to foreign direct investment? Sure. Well, in, in, in the end, a, a foreign direct investment um, site selection pro uh, process is not all that different from a domestic process. Um, the, the the biggest difference probably is the view of the client and their level of understanding and, and sophistication in um, in conversing with a site selector. Um, so general understanding enters into that, you know, how, how is power I mean, on, a, on a very sort of silly level? How, how, how are you? What, what are the units of measurement? How is power measured? Right. What 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 is how do you define an acre? All, all those questions play into it but also layers of cultural considerations and 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 that somewhat complicates a foreign foreign pro, um, project uh, as as those companies will 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 not just navigate the the objective search but also the cultural layer well they're looking at it through their own lens of the world and how they do business so it sounds like you're saying it would behoove a community or somebody recruiting an FDI project to do their homework uh, about the culture uh, that they're attempting, uh, where the company comes from, where they're trying or who they're trying to attract. Right. And, and I think that um, that learning process on part of the, um, of the community um, usually takes a couple of years. It, it's really hard if, if you have not worked with a with a foreign investor if you've not worked with a let's say a, a german an italian or a korean to to switch that on overnight or or, or look look at you know on a google website say korean cultural issues read up on them and then be expected to to move very smoothly the next day in in that cultural space um the the communities that do this work the best are steeped in it and um have have a depth of knowledge and 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 a, and a visible degree of comfort Conversely, as someone who doesn't, 
usually has a visible degree of discomfort as, as these clients visit and, and they sort of walk on eggshells. Some of the other things that you pointed out, uh, talking about uh, knowing your flights and connections and also time zones, how does that help uh, with the attractiveness to a client? Well, sure. And um, I, I suppose the time zone is one of those side factors that Mississippi can't do very much about, right? You're in the central time zone and you're not going to change that. Um, but, but to give you a concrete example, uh, G- Germany, for the most part, is on a, on a seven and a half or eight hour workday. And, and most people come to work at eight. And if you, if you move on from that, with a, with a seven hour time, time difference to Mississippi, that leaves half an hour or one hour of overlap between a typical Mississippi workday and a, and a German workday. And, and that creates difficulties in, in cooperating. And that's that's always gonna gonna be on the on the investor's mind when they compare Mississippi, let's say, to a South Carolina site where there's one hour of additional overlap, uh, and, and and more opportunity for cooperation. Uh, if you look at the flight connections, of course, people will travel back and forth between you know the, the parent company and the subsidiary, particularly in the first years, but also when there's unexpected events, uh, things need to be troublesho- troubleshot. Uh, engineer needs to come and, and fix a machine. The quicker you can get to a particular location, generally the better. Now, um, the, the good thing is Mississippi has a variety of airports. They're connected to large international hubs. So for the most part, that's always going to be one hop. You know, it's going to be Jackson, Atlanta, Atlanta, Germany, or Jackson, Atlanta, Atlanta, Korea. And all, all those things would generally work out. But there are locations that are remote, and it becomes a different calculus when you look at Frankfurt, Atlanta, Atlanta, Jackson, and then a four-hour car ride. Yeah, that definitely some uh, some challenges there. And in a smaller state where we only have one internet, well, the inter- primary international airport in uh, Jackson, um, you know, there there can be uh, some additional travel time on that. Right. Um. How important are incentives uh, to the FDI projects? I would say they initially they do not figure at all. So for, for most of our clients, we um, we we insist on as as advisors, we insist on running a site selection purely on qualitative factors. Um, we start broad and go narrow. It's it's key that the site meets the qualitative criteria that that. You know, either either land or building is sufficient for the client's needs, or can be adapted within reasonable time frame or cost. So that's that's important. But if we do our work well as as a site selection team, the client should at the end have a number of sites that are, you know, largely interchangeable. In other words, if 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 I run a site selection process together with our team and we come up. Um, with with one remaining site, and that's the only site the client would ever have considered, and all the other, let's say, fifty sites are rejected as insufficient. I've done something wrong. Um, the the more the more acceptable sites I present to a client, the better. And then incentives uh, can be a, a tiebreaker between between those acceptable sites. So if let's say we have three remaining sites, and our our scoring or evaluation model indicates them to be virtually identical, then, then a, you know, gut factors ap- apply. Certainly that, that, that is a way some clients make decisions and other clients just look at, look at an incentive package. And the, the differences can be 
dramatic. How big are we talking here as far as employment in the U.S. of FDI currently? And are we seeing new or more FDI uh, right now, especially with the way the economy has been? I don't know that we've seen the the effects on, on the latest economic changes yet. And um, the economic indicators that we receive from the Bureau of Economic uh, analysis and select USA always trail a little bit. So we're always looking at data that's a year or two old. Um, but FDI remains one of the major sources of industrial um, job growth in the US. And in fact, um, the, the Department of Commerce tells us that about 80% of new job growth in industrial manufacturing in the US in the last years, I think in the time frame that they use is five years, rolling five years, um, has been attributable to foreign investment. So what, what we've seen pretty consistently since I've been doing this work for the last 18 years is that the trend has been for American companies to export jobs to lower cost locations, to, to grow abroad, essentially grow in middle America and grow in Asia. And that some of that job loss has been equalized by um, foreign investors stepping into the U.S. and increasing their manufacturing presence here. Who... Right now in the U.S., uh, who are our largest sources of foreign direct investment? And then who are you seeing coming on the radar that's growing? Right. The, um, consistently, the largest source for foreign investment has been Western Europe. Um, and that's usually sort of in the two, two-thirds range. Two-thirds of the, the investments come from Western Europe. Um, in Asia, Korea and Japan are major sources, and of course, state by state, that differs quite a bit. So, you know, if you if you look at Mississippi, Japan would be a major source of investment. Um, looking perhaps at, at Kansas, Japan doesn't practically doesn't figure, but but Japan and Korea are important sources. Um, and then we see you know, fairly consistent investment from from Canada um, to the U.S. because it's a, that's a tight trading relationship. The markets are are, are very integrated. And in terms of newcomers um, over the years, and, and, and really as long as I've been in this business, people have always waited for, for China to enter the market in a big way. Um, we have advised some Chinese clients. My experience has been that they often look at the market. I'm not sure that they often carry, carry through with their investment plans. So we've, we've negotiated deals that we're still, 10 years ago, that we're still <laughs> waiting, waiting to happen. So, um, and, and my sense is that the Chinese have very strict export controls and capital controls. It's really hard for Chinese companies to do business abroad. Um, Turkey has been a major growth uh, in, uh, in FDI in the U.S. And, and, and that's likely to do with um, sort of geopolitical factors there. Um, the, the, the government of Turkey has become more restrictive, less democratic, less liberal. So... Uh, Turks have started shifting their money abroad. Uh, also, the Turkish lira is weak, so they like income in dollars and euros. And, and these are, Turkey is dominated by these large multinational companies that are generally privately held. So maybe 10, 15, 20 companies own most of the Turkish businesses. So that's a, that's a very significant concentration. And, and all these folks are either US or EU educated. They're very open to the world and then pretty sophisticated. So that's a great market. We're seeing South, you know, um, South Africa pop up. Um, Thailand, uh, interestingly, is becoming, becoming more active. 
and you're seeing the um, the eastern the Eastern European countries that have heavily industrialized over the last 25 years show up on on investments. Um, I was working with a, a Polish company two weeks ago, looking at a couple sites in in Georgia and, and South Carolina. So um, that's coming, and I, I suspect the the war, the war in Ukraine and the fear of Russia may accelerate. Um, Eastern European companies looking looking to diversify their manufacturing base. So, what sectors profit the most from FDI here? Oh, it's it's incredibly broad. I I, I don't know that he can can make a sort of hard and fast statement. And of course, it depends on on the country of origin. Um, the most visible in the southeast has been the automotive industry. I think hands down. If, if yeah, surely if you look at you know Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, the Carolinas, the most visible the, the lighthouse investments are automotive, and, and the entire automotive supply chain. Uh, if you look at um, let's say Puerto Rico or or New Jersey, um, you you see a lot of pharmaceuticals, which of course are you know, huge dollar investments. Not a lot of them, but huge. I mean, these plants you know often. Be, cost hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Um, and that that's a major market there. We've seen pretty pretty steady flow of um, food and beverage um, manufacturing. And that's still somewhat driven by the fact that um, European supermarket chains are stealthily expanding in the US. Um, you may not know, but Tra- Trader Joe's is, is German owned. Did not know that. Yeah, it's it's owned by Aldi actually. Aldi, the Aldi family owns Trader Joe's. Of course, Aldi's is expanding at a rapid clip. Lidl, which is Aldi's largest German competitor, is is very rapidly expanding across the East Coast and Southeast. I I don't know if they've reached this market yet, but they have plans to blanket the U.S. with stores. Um, you have. Um, so, so they were driving that because they have their own supplier network of companies they like to work with, and they they feel comfortable. And 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 U.S. food, the U.S. food and, and beverage market has traditionally had higher margins, so it's an attractive market, but it's also ripe for disruption. So we're seeing that. Um, we're seeing a fair bit of recycling, um, interestingly. So. Uh, I've advised some metals recyclers um, that will take, for example, old computers, um, semiconductors, and and extract the copper and gold and other precious metals from it. Um, the um, I, th- I think that that'll re- remain relatively active, is my sense from 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 what I'm seeing. And of course, the the entire market, like you could put that in in, a, in either in electronics or in automotive. EV sort of uh, electric mobility in the in the greatest sense of the wor- word is is pretty active. We're seeing projects f- for chargers, for batteries, for for storage, um, and and that I, I think that will accelerate. I've seen a lot of projects over the last year and a half, battery projects, you know, coming across, um, right. and that seems to be the one of the big hot industrial sectors that we're seeing. Hopefully, a lot of growth, and hopefully, we'll attract something to Mississippi. Yes, yes, no doubt. Um, what about subsectors uh, with high FDI growth potential? Uh, things that we may not have talked about. Sure. Well, there are some less less visible sectors. Um, we see pretty steady flow on machinery and equipment, and I think that's a a subsector that. Um, most communities don't actively recruit, uh, and these will tend to be smaller, smaller investments. So, 
let's say you have, uh, and and you're you're probably aware, a lot of machinery and equipment is manufactured in Japan, Germany, and Italy. That's sort of the the big industrial equipment uh, manufacturers. But when you walk into, let's say, the the Nissan plant, um, you know, in in the in the Jackson area. And, and you look at the equipment, you'll you'll probably see that a lot of there's a lot of German, a lot of Japanese robots, a, lo- a lot of um, presses in, in the body shop that are Italian or or German or it or or of course Japanese. And the reality is those machines have to be continuously maintained and regularly replaced. And once you multiply out the fact that that's not the only plant, there are many other plants, and there's pretty much common machinery in all of them. Um, you you'd see that manufacturing remanufacturing maintenance of those requires a local base none none of that can be done out of japan italy or germany exclusively so it's been pretty steady that these companies set up operations in the u.s to maintain and and improve on their existing base so ulrich and i are currently working with a um german supplier to 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 robotics vendors so they're really they're really working on the end of the robotics arm, customizing it to to approach you. So, improving it, um, maintaining it, and and they're looking at creating a hundred jobs. Now that that's not primary industry; it's it's industry supporting industry, and it's it's something that will be largely invisible, and 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 certainly not one of those you know big big sexy targets to go after. But it's a hundred jobs, and it's a twenty million dollar investment, and all these are. Our maintenance technicians. I mean, that's that's pretty high skill, and I, I I think a good addition to a mature industrial base. It's it's not the right fit for every community. I mean, if if your your only plant is, you know, is a Purdue chicken plant or hatchery, your second plant isn't going to be ro- you know, custom robotics. It's just not going to happen. But if you have a solid industrial base, one jewel in the crown, maybe custom robotics. That's uh, essentially the seed that grows uh, other businesses. How is the uh, the current labor market affecting FDI? Uh, because uh, no secret that that's been the topic. It's people, people, people. Where are the people, or can we get enough people? What have you been seeing? Well, yeah, where are the people? We we really don't know where they went, and they haven't come back, have they? Um, yeah, it's um, that that's a huge issue for us, um, and. We've always assumed that labor needs to be trained um, because the, the nature of these investments tends to be that they need a very specific, specific and, and highly qualified workforce. Um, but the, the, the sort of the, the, the base availability of labor in a community has to be there. And, and um, with the current unemployment rates or the unemployment rates really in the last four, five, six years, um, we've been trending towards larger larger areas than we would have perhaps 10 or 15 years ago. It, it just takes so much more to recruit you know, 300 or 500 employees now than it did then. Um, one way to get out of that is, is to train better. Um, but our experience is that the community colleges need help with that. We I, I don't know that that the current training systems are entirely sufficient to get us where we need to be. Are these uh, companies looking to partner uh, on the training side as well um, and to help speed that process along? Yes. So they, um, the, 
the, the ideal model would be to have the the um, the local community college in the U.S. partner with the preferred community college of the investor in in Europe, because those you know, the, our our clients are generally long term residents of their communities. They they may be there for a couple hundred years, and that their local community college knows exactly what they need. There is no need to reinvent the wheel. Let's say in the you know in the Greater Jackson area, if if the training plans have already been developed. Uh, in, in Pforzheim, Germany, and you can you can go there and, and, and work with that community college to essentially l- learn from them and establish those similar training plans. Um, that n- not all community colleges are either willing or able to do that, so there is some some resistance. You know, there is always a lot of mouth service to customization. We'll do it. We'll do it. But that often means we're, we're going to use the building blocks that we have in place already. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes that's just not enough. And, and that gives um, our clients often reason for pause and say, well, do we really know that these existing building blocks are enough? And our recommendation pretty consistently has been to, to bring, in, bring in a specialized education consultant to quickly look at that, put those two curricula next to each other, recommend sort of a bridging plan to say, what, what do we need? What do we need to get from A to B? And I think one of our great examples of addressing that in the state of Mississippi, and it was also a decision factor, was the location of the Continental Tire uh, commercial vehicle uh, tire plant in Clinton, Mississippi. And the company worked directly with the local community college, and there was such great exchange back and forth in creating, uh, a lot of people say customized training, but this was truly customized and the exchange of knowledge going back and forth is occurring to this day. I see it all the time. Yeah. And, and that's a good example of a successful, successful venture. And, and, and I think generally those don't turn out to be one-offs. I think when, when, when properly set up, there is an ongoing exchange between those two colleges and they keep learning from each other. We had a chance to chat for a few minutes before we started recording today, and you were talking about limited partnerships, and I was not familiar with this, and especially, you know, this pertains to FDI from Germany. Um, Can you explain, help me define limited partnerships and what some of the advantages uh, are for companies uh, to enter into one? Yeah, so for... um from an from an attorney's perspective, and I'm trained as a lawyer, um, one of the early questions in in setting up a client for investing in the US is the choice of entity, and and principally in the U.S. we have three choices: a corporation, an LLC, or a limited partnership. Um, I think corporation and LLC are somewhat self-explanatory. Um, a limited partnership is an entity where two or more people or corporate entities come together to join together in a common venture. Um, and if if one of those has limited liability, and we speak of a limited partnership as opposed to a general partnership where both partners are, are fully liable for the debts of the business. So in a limited partnership, that's not the case. So it's a, it's a modified type of partnership. In the US, um, they are quite uncommon. And th- the reason is, you need to form two entities to form a limited partnership. And uh, in a corporation or LLC, you don't. You just need to form one. So there's really no benefit to being a limited partnership for most business entities in the U.S. 
with the exception of doctors' offices, lawyers' practices. Often they are often formed as limited partnerships for particular reasons. Um, now, if you're in the German-American investment space, all of a sudden you see that 70, 80, 90% of the businesses that come across doing business in the US are limited partnerships. And the reason is that Germany and the US have entered in, in, in the 1950s, entered into a double taxation treaty that was designed to assist um, companies from either country to do business in the other and clarify the tax consequences of doing so. So when you do business in, in a foreign country, there's always a risk that the governments want to double dip on taxes, right? You, you earn money in the U.S. Um, once you've earned that money, one day in the future, it'll need to come back to Germany. And what does the German government do with that money? And vice versa. Coca-Cola earns money in selling Coke in, in, in Germany. Eventually, the American shareholder wants to see some of that cash. What does the American government do after the German government has already taken their taxes out of it? So a double taxation treaty governs that. And Germany, for whatever reason, inserted in this double taxation treaty a provision that exempts German limited partnership from secondary taxation in Germany. So a German limited partnership that earns money in the U.S., and repatriates those funds to Germany is not taxed in Germany. It's only ever taxed in the U.S. So it, it is a it's a tremendous tax advantage, and it encourages German companies to invest abroad because they know that they will gener they they will generate income abroad, make profit abroad, pay taxes abroad, and not be taxed again in Germany. And when you look at differential tax rates, the U.S. is fairly. I mean, you it may not you may not think of it that way, but it's a fairly low tax jurisdiction compared to most of Europe. So it's an it's an attractive vehicle um, for German companies to do business as. And that's why you see so many limited partnerships. Let's look out into the future real quickly. You know, perspectives and risks that are on the horizon are affecting FDI right now. Sure. So, I mean, we're, we're entering, you had alluded earlier, we're entering into a period of economic instability, right? Um, we, we don't really know how that will um, shake out yet. Um, we are dealing with pretty significant inflation, and um, that is affecting interest rates, which will ultimately affect companies' ability to refinance uh, and, 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 and deploy capital. Um, one interesting effect of the euro is that, which is a common European currency and, and creates a common debt market in Europe, that um, Germany and Italy essentially pay the same interest rate, even though their economies are very, very different. So um, interest rates in Europe are probably lower than they should be, and, and the Eurozone has limited um, ability to respond to inflation because increasing interest rates would have an adverse or more adverse effect on Southern Europe than it does on Northern Europe. So we're watching that. We're saying... Will, how hard how hard will the European Central Bank step on the brakes? Um, we are still dealing with um, these supply chain disruptions, which are pretty significant. Um, the war in Ukraine has entered into that. So um, Ukraine was a low-cost manufacturing state for many European uh, companies and, and heavily industrialized. I mean, really an industrial center in Europe. 
And of course, production there has simply stopped um, and, and in many cases has been destroyed. So they're, they're, companies are, are struggling with that, replacing that base and, um, and, and finding alternate suppliers that will take time. Um, we, um, we, yeah, we, that, so th those are probably the largest, the largest uncertainties. Um, I think the U S looks good by comparison, right? It's, it's far away from, from, um, what, what Europeans perceive as, you know, or see as pretty heavy Russian interference on, on the Eastern fringe of Europe. I, I think the U S is a, is a safe haven, right? If the U S isn't doing, if, if, if the U S were really get drawn into this, I think we have a much bigger problem. Um, and, and, and so I think we'll, we'll see some flows, some continuing investment flows into the U S but of course we have you know issues here. Again, we, we talked about workforce and, uh, the U.S. political system isn't as stable as it was ten or fifteen years ago, and 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 I mean that's keenly reported on in Europe, um, and people people are quite sensitive to that, um, and, and we'll just have to see how that develops. He's helping us navigate the complexities of foreign direct investment, Florian Stamm. Thank you for joining us on Mississippi Prospects. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Mississippi Prospects is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council, the Mississippi Development Authority, Cooperative Energy, Entergy, Greater Jackson Alliance, Mississippi Power, MWB, the Tennessee Valley Authority, Atmos Energy, the Area Development Partnership, Butler Snow, Jones Walker, Madison County Economic Development Authority, the Mississippi Research Consortium, the North Mississippi Industrial Development Association, and Rankin First Economic Development Authority, and produced by MWB Studios. If you have questions or comments, join us on Twitter at MEDC Info.